Let's pray together. We come to you, our Lord, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved him and gave himself for us, an offering, a sacrifice for sin, for a sweet fragrance before you. We come through him as our only mediator between God and man, he who is the way, the truth, and the life. We come before you clothed in his righteousness. And we come to ask you to open our hearts and minds as we study more about his work, his wondrous work, his work in executing the plan uh, created by the Trinity, the plan made by God the Father and executed by God the Son and applied to us who know you by God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ, the theme of heaven, the great love of the Father, the great love of the Holy Spirit, we pray for the ministry of the Spirit, glorifying him to us. Oh, God forbid that there be one heart here not stirred by the magnificence of Jesus Christ, not humbled, not brought to a greater love and a more ardent zeal for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series, Basic Bible Basics Revisited, we studied and learned of the person of Christ, that he is fully God and fully man, without mixture or confusion. He is one person with two natures, his deity, pure deity, his humanity, pure humanity. We studied last week his work in the past, his goings forth from eternity. We looked at his eternal work within the Godhead, within the Trinity, and we looked at his works from his old, of old, uh, creating, being commissioned to come for the salvation of the elect, consecrated, crucified, raised, directing history towards the end for which God had created it. Now we look at the work of Christ in the present and the work of Christ in the future. And if you hear anyone talking about what Jesus Christ is doing today, you should immediately ask, what book should I open to? Because we don't know what he's doing, except insofar as Scripture uh, opens it to us. We don't know it by guessing and observation. We know it by revelation. So let's look together, Roman numeral one, at Christ's work in the present. This could be a series of sermons. We're just looking at six of the activities of Jesus, but there are a great many more that he's doing in this present time. And the first at which we want to gaze, a glorious work of Christ, you might not think of it, but his first glorious work is sitting, the work of sitting. Now, he predicted this work when he was on trial before the uh, high priests in Matthew 26, verses 63b and 64. I'll read that to you. The high priest says to Jesus, I put you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you yourself said it, which is kind of a loaded way of saying no comment. In other words, you've said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now here, under oath, Jesus makes an announcement based on two scriptures of two aspects of his future work. First, sitting at the right hand of power. Where does that come from? That comes from Psalm 110, verse 1, where Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. And then the second alludes to Daniel 7.13, we'll look at later. So with the cross in the foreground, he tells them that he will sit at the right hand of God. 
So he's predicted he's going to go to the cross, but the cross obviously will not be the end of his road. After the cross comes this session, this sitting at the right hand of God, and then he will return in glory. So that's Jesus' prediction of this, based on the prediction in Psalm 110. Now let's look, to, look at it fulfilled, and do turn here with me to Hebrews chapter 1, please. And just the most magnificent beginning of any book, I think, written by man, or at least a, an equal for any. If you put in uh, Genesis and others, John, Gospel of John, with uh, stirring beginnings. But uh, we look at verse 3 because it's, it's possible to go past that too quickly. The writer's talking about the Lord Jesus. And in verse 3, he speaks of his nature as the Son of God, as God the Son. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And then he turns to his works. He upholds all things by the word of his power. We looked at that last week. He's carrying all things towards the end God decreed. And then he says this. This is where we focus. Who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what Jesus says in Matthew 26 is going to happen, the writer to the Hebrews says, has happened. He has, in fact, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, he briefly explains here why that is. How could he sit down? He just says in passing, having accomplished cleansing for sins. Now, we'll see him open that up in just a second. But here, this is the premise of his sitting. Had he not done that, he would not be able to sit down. His sitting down signals that that's been accomplished, that he's accomplished cleansing for sins, not tried to, but actually done it. So that is the fulfilled aspect of it. Now let's look at it explained, number three on your outline. Explained, and that's in chapter 10. Just a, another magnificent section, magnificent chapter in a magnificent book. But Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 12, we just read a moment ago. We'll, we'll lift out those two verses. Such a vivid picture, such a vivid contrast. Notice how starkly verse 11 contrasts with verse 12. And every priest, since the initiation of the Aaronic priesthood in the book of Exodus, every priest, no exception, every priest stands, present tense, keeps standing, daily, day after day after day, ministering and offering. So this is an ongoing activity, repeated, 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 time after time, many times, literally, just again and again and again. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering, time after time, the same sacrifices. Not version 2.0, 3.0, never improved, the same sacrifices. Why does he do it again and again? Why has every priest had to do this? Why does every priest have to continue to do this under that system? Because they can never take away sins. So if one thinks, well, the, the role of these animal sacrifices must be finally to deal with sin, then we'd have to say, if that's their purpose, they've completely failed in that purpose. Because there never came a time where a high priest stood up and anointed with the Spirit of God said, you know, I think that last bull did it. I think that one turned the trick. I think that's the one that finally did away with sin. We can stop. All the sacrifices are canceled for me. 
No, this never happened because it was not the nature and that was not the intent of those sacrifices. They were initiated by God as signs pointing forward to what verse 12 talks about. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering sacrifices over and over. Verse 12, but he, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice, contrasted with many sacrifices, for sins for all time, contrasted with daily and time and time again. One sacrifice for sins for all time. Then what did he do? The verse says, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, as, as has often been observed, the one bit of furniture that can't be found in the tabernacle is a chair. There's, there's no chair because the priest is never done. He's never done. But the Son of God could sit down. Why? Because as 1.3 says, he accomplished cleansing for sin. Or as this verse says, he offered an effectual sacrifice for sin. One sacrifice for all time. So when Jesus did his work on the cross, that work was perfect. It was fulfilled. All of this just underscores the truth of what he says on the cross. It is finished. And because it is finished, he can sit down. This verse 11 paints the portrait of futility and impotence. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Verse 12 paints the portrait of effectiveness, of redemption accomplished and applied, of the Lord Jesus doing the work and then being able to sit at the right hand of God. And there is the basis for the Christian's utter assurance of salvation. And this is one of the many blasphemies, sad to say, of the Roman Catholic Church in repeating the sacrifice of Christ as they say week after week in the Mass. No, no. One sacrifice for all time. For all time. He doesn't get up every Sunday and do it again. He will never get up and do it again. Why? Does not need to. Perfect, accomplished atonement. First then, he is sitting. And there are six things that I'll point out, though as I say, there are many more I could. Letter B, he is waiting. Now you're in Hebrews 10, I hope. Just look at the next verse. Hebrews 10, 13. Sat down at the right hand of God, he said, waiting from that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. Well, that takes us back to Psalm 110, a, 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 a psalm that this letter uh, uh, dwells on at great length. He's going to continue sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, never to get up to offer sacrifice again. But this does tell us the next time that he will move, the next time he'll change location. It's when the time comes for the Father to send him back. First of all, send him back to collect his own, and then send him back to reign uh, as his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. I'll read to you Acts 3, 19 through 21, but, but note it down. This comments further on this sitting and then rising. Acts 3, 19, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So apart from his coming to commission the apostle Paul, the untimely born, as he says of himself, uh, 
Jesus remains seated and will remain seated until he comes to catch away his church and then comes to establish his kingdom on earth. And this is his activity. This is, this is what he's doing between his first and second coming. He's waiting for the word to come from the Father. He's waiting for the Father's hand to say, go and send him back for uh, the consummation of these times and of the kingdom of man and bringing in of the kingdom of God. He's waiting. Thirdly, letter C, he is building. He's building. And I get that from Matthew 16, 16, 18, Matthew 16, 18, which we studied at length as we went through the, as we're going through the gospel of Matthew when we were there. So Jesus says, and I say to you that you are Petros, Peter, and upon this Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Well, when he says that, he uses a future tense verb. I will build my church. He hasn't been building his church. He's not building his church at that time. He's going to begin doing this in the future. The church is not Israel, not a fulfillment of Israel, not a continuation of Israel, not Israel at all. The church is the church. Israel is Israel. Jesus is going to build his church beginning on the day of Pentecost. And so he's saying that his activity between comings is going to be the activity of building the church. Remember that with Matthew, Matthew 12, the nation is committing the unpardonable sin. And in Matthew 13, Jesus explains this phase of the work of the kingdom of God in the mystery parables that he teaches, what's going to be going on in this time. And here's more revelation on that here in Matthew 16. What Jesus does between his first and his second coming is he builds the church. I will build my church on your confession, on this confession of my deity that Peter had just made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. On that rock, Jesus says, I will build my church. This is his activity. And if you're walking with Jesus, well, you're doing that same thing. Chad brought this out very well in his uh, Sunday school classes, didn't he? That Hebrews 4 uh, reveals uh, so, so powerfully and so convictingly and with such motivation that every part of the body of Christ is involved in what? The building up of itself in love. So Jesus is building his church. We're involved in that building of that church if we're walking with Jesus. If we're not involved, then we're not involved in what he says that he's doing during this time, the building of his church. Letter D, how is he doing this? How is he building the church? Letter D, saving. And I'll show you how that relates to the building of the church in just a moment. But saving, this is what he's doing. Now, I remind you, this is literally his name. <laughs> his name literally is this. Uh, Matthew 1, you should call his name Jesus, Jesus, because he himself will save his people from their sin. Matthew 1, 21. Uh, playing on the Hebrew name of the, uh, the Hebrew sense of the name Yeshua uh, from the verb Yasha, which means to save. You will call his name salvation or savior because he himself will save his people from their sins. It's literally his name. It's what he's doing. Uh, it's in his name that we must be saved. It's on his name we must call to be saved. It's in his name we must be saved. Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12 is such a powerful, powerful verse. If ever the question comes up, well, are there other ways of salvation? What about the people in Borneo and in, in, in uh, Australia, the Aborigines? What about, what about this people, that people? Well, Acts 4.12 is one of the verses that answers that question. Peter says, 
that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It's by calling on the name of Jesus that one is saved. Acts 2, 21, Peter preached, and uh, quoting from Joel, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's on that name we must call to be saved. It's in that name alone that we can be saved. Peter says so emphatically, there is salvation in no other, no other person, no other thing, no other activity. There's not a church ritual. There's not a dogma. There's not a work of man that can save. Only Jesus. Salvation is in Jesus alone, and that's what he's doing today. He's saving his people from their sins. So, this lordship, we must call on Jesus as Lord because this lordship is granted by his Father in reward of his work on the cross. Acts 2.36, Peter concludes saying, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him Lord and Christ. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved because there is salvation in no other. There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And so this is how he builds his church. He builds his church as he saves people because as he saves people, he adds them to his church. Acts 2.47. Please note that down. Acts 2.47 where we read that the early church was praising God and having favor among all the people. And listen to this. The Lord, normally in the New Testament, if you just see the Lord, that's speaking of the Lord Jesus. So, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So how is Jesus building his church? By adding those whom he saves to its number. Because the church is the people of God. It's it's not bricks and mortar. It's not, what is it, hardy plank? Is that, did I say that right? I'm not a builder. Uh, it's not any of those things. It is people. It's the people who Jesus saves. He adds to the church those who are saved. And so the Philippian jailer, hearing them sing about salvation, says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And thus Jesus builds his church, and that's what he's doing today. He's building his church as he saves each person who calls on his name in saving faith. So fourth, he is saving. Fifth, he is baptizing. He's baptizing. Oh, you mean water baptizing, huh? No, that's not what I mean. Turn to Mark chapter 1, please. Pretty easy to find. Mark chapter 1. And this is... Re uh, telling us about the ministry of John the Baptist, who did baptize in water. Yes, he did. But he says this in Mark 1, verses 7 and 8. And he was preaching, saying, After me is coming one who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Who do you suppose he speaks of? Very good. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. I baptized you with water, he says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That is the reality of which water is the symbol. 
But he says, I will baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So under John, who's the baptizer? It's John. What's the medium? Water. With Jesus, who's the baptizer? Jesus. What's the medium? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the medium. This is a prediction of his work because, of course, again, John uses the future tense because Jesus hasn't even begun his ministry yet at this point, let alone died on the cross and risen from the grave. So how did he become able to baptize with the Holy Spirit? Number two, enabled. We saw it predicted. Now number two, we will see it enabled. Turn, turn to Acts 2.33, please. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. So this is Peter's sermon preached on the birthday of the church. Before this day, there is no church. This is the day of Pentecost, which marks the coming of the Holy Spirit in the economy, the plan of God. And so, having spoken of Jesus' death and his resurrection, as he does in this sermon, in verse 33, he says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured out this which you both see and hear. So you see the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was sensible, able to be sensed by the speaking with uh, unlearned languages that happened on this day. That is the result of a promise from the Father to the Son that should he go to the cross in obedience to the Father and make atonement for his people, that he would be given the gift of the Holy Spirit to pour out on his church. And indeed, he did die for his people. He was resurrected. He was exalted to God's right hand. And he received from the Father this promise, what he had promised, the gift of the Holy Spirit to pour out on the church. And so uh, many evangelicals think of the, the cross very unbiblically and very sloppily. They just, they think in terms of, a, well, really in terms of a hypothesis and a gesture. They think Jesus died for absolutely everybody without exception, though he did not by his death actually save anybody, contrary to all the verses we've been reading this morning about what he accomplished by his death. But he didn't actually save anybody. And so he can't have really been given the gift of the Holy Spirit yet because there might or might not be a church. He didn't make that sure by his death on the cross. And it's just offered to everybody like so many gifts with blank cards on it and you go in and fill in your name and hopefully somebody will pick them up and we'll just have to see. But that's not the way the Bible repeatedly and over and over again speaks about the work of Jesus on the cross. He came to accomplish a specific work and we've seen what that work was. The Father gave people to him to give eternal life to them. His sheep for whom the good shepherd laid down his life, his bride, for whom the husband laid down his life to uh, sanctify her to himself. And so he accomplishes what the father has given him to do. He does, as he says, the work that God gave him to do. And this is his reward. His reward is the people whom God gave to him to save and the gift of the Holy Spirit to pour out on this people to constitute the church. So his work on the cross doesn't just make salvation or atonement possible. It actually accomplishes salvation and atonement. And so the Holy Spirit comes and applies that to the people of God in, in, in keeping with the will of the Trinity, the election of God the Father, the atonement of God the Son, and now the pouring out of God the, the Holy Spirit to accomplish this as we see on his people. And so he comes. And so the fulfillment is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Take a look there. 
with me. This is very important today. Kind of sad to say. But 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And here I, I, would, I have a slight difference with the LSB translation. Uh, without, without argument, Paul literally says, for in one spirit. Now, in can be translated by. That's a legitimate translation. But let me show you why I'd prefer. For in one spirit, we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So why does that matter at all? Well, remember the, the prophecy of John the Baptist, right? Who, who, who was the baptizer? The baptizer is going to be Jesus. And what will the medium of baptism be? The medium will be the Holy Spirit. And so I think it better to see this as that same fulfillment. In one spirit, that's the medium, we were all baptized by Jesus into one body. As Luke said, the Lord's adding to the body day after day those who are being saved. How is he doing that? By saving them and by baptizing them in the Holy Spirit into his body. And so where does water baptism come in? And, well, this is why it's so important only to baptize people who have a, a, a credible confession of conversion. Because water baptism is a picture of this. John's baptism looked forward to it. Christian baptism looks back on it. That when each person is converted, he's baptized with the Spirit into the body of Christ. And so you see, this is why it, it's so, such a serious error that many Christians teach that the baptism of the Spirit is something that only some Christians have, and, and they get it after conversion, and they have to seek it by certain means that well, they have to make up, frankly, because it's not in the Bible at all. Uh, and so it's something that is not theirs by virtue of being in Christ. Very differently is the teaching of the Bible. The baptism in the Spirit is something Jesus won by his death on the cross. And to say that he's saving people who aren't given that gift is to, to say that he was denied that gift or to imply as much. But no, the Father gave him that gift and he does pour that out just as John said he would on every one of his people. This is the medium by which we are immersed into the body of Christ by Christ baptizing us in the Holy Spirit, into his body. That's how he's building up that body. This is how we're added to uh, the church that Christ is building uh, by baptism with the Spirit. So those are five of the present works of the Lord Jesus. Now let's look at the sixth. Keeping. Keeping. And I see three aspects of how Jesus keeps. First, keeping by power. Turn to John chapter 10 with me, please. Those he saves and baptizes, he keeps. So, marvelous chapter, John chapter 10. He's speaking of himself as the good shepherd here and, and of his sheep, not the goats, but the sheep. They elect whom God has given to him. In verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, this is not a still small voice every day telling you what brand of beans to buy. This is the voice that calls us to salvation, the voice that call, by which the shepherd calls us to him. And the mark of the elect is that when they hear his voice, they come. Those who are not his sheep do not come to his call. 
But the mark of the elect, the mark of the sheep, is they come. They hear the gospel call and they come. They hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here we have it. He, first of all, we have his word that his sheep will never perish. That is sufficient all in itself, is it not? Jesus is the faithful, the amen. He never yet has said something untrue, never will. When he says they'll never perish, this alone is assurance to anyone who comes to the Lord Jesus that he will be kept. They will never perish ever. But he says more. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So this cannot happen. Now, will people try to? Well, yes, of course. Loved ones who don't know the Lord Jesus will try to. Circumstances will try to. The devil and his angels may try to. But he's saying there's no one who can do this. In my hand, they are secure. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And as I always say at this point, probably, uh, I know that the thought of some is, well, but I can snatch myself out of his hand. And of course, the answer to that is, well, if you did that, would you perish? Well, yes, of course you would. Could that happen? See above. They will never perish, ever. So no, not even I can snatch myself out of his hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father in one. So to me, it creates the image of the hand of Jesus in this hand of the Father together, clasping the elect, clasping the sheep, and keeping them. And just notice this phrasing. He says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is able, that's the Greek verb dunamai, which means to have the power to do something. The noun dunamis, power, comes from that. So he's saying no one has the power to do that. Well, you might, you kind of want to say, well, duh. I mean, this is the hand of God we're talking about. In fact, this is the hands of God we're talking about, is it not? The hand of God the Father, the hand of God the Son. This is the hands that stretched out the heavens, the hands that laid the foundation of the earth. The hands that control and keep all things together and direct all things. Now, out of those hands, who has the power to snatch anything or anyone? Absolutely no one. And so his sheep, his elect, are in those hands. They're kept safe by the power of God. Secondly, they're kept safe by intercession. And do you think of this very often? This is a blessed thing to think of. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And here the writer is talking about the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 7, and again making a contrast between the Levitical priests, the Aaronic priesthood, I'm saying Aaronic, not ironic, um, the two A's, and the priesthood from Aaron. And the former priests, verse 23, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. <laughs> so in other words, you need lots of priests because they kept dying, and you kept needing new priests because the old ones died. So you needed lots of priests. But, verse 24, Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. I'd probably translate that untransferred. In other words, there's no need to pass it from priest to priest to priest. It's just his. It's just his. He doesn't give it to anyone else. No need to. Why? He goes on to say, 
Well, he said, because he continues forever. So there's no need for multiple priests. We've got the one priest, and he lives forever. Now, here comes the payoff in terms of our security. Verse 25, therefore, because he continues as a priest forever, therefore, he is able also to save forever. Now, I would probably translate this to save all the way, because that's the Greek expression here. It's used once of a woman who's bent over with something wrong with her back, and she can't straighten up estopanteles, estopanteles. She can't straighten up forever? No, she can't straighten up all the way, because she's bent over. And this is what Jesus saves. He doesn't save someone partly. He saves all the way. Why is that? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So you say, well, the, the reason I know I have, I have assurance is because I'm giving eternal life. If I lost it, it wouldn't be very eternal. Okay, that's good. I know because the Father keeps me in his hand. That's true. Jesus promises me eternal life. That's, that's a very good reason. But here's another reason. Because Jesus prays for his people. He makes intercession for his people. He saves all the way because he prays them all the way through. So what's that picture? If you've studied the Old Testament, you know right away what that picture is, what that comes from. What was the, the, the working uniform of the high priest? What, what were the features of the working uniform of the high priest as to his chest and his shoulders? He, he had stones on his chest. What was engraved on those stones? The names of the tribes of Israel. And what was engraved on the stones on his shoulders? The names of the tribes of Israel. And so whenever he went in before Yahweh to minister... And if you picture Yahweh looking at him, what is he seeing him carry? The tribes of Israel. He bears them before Yahweh when he goes into minister. So Jesus is our great high priest. And how does this apply that picture? Well, we're to picture Jesus going in before his father, bearing your name, bearing my name, bearing the names of all the elect before his father. All the elect, bringing in and speaking of us by name, you say. Is that, are you kind of using your imagination? No, <laughs> I'm not at all. I'm using my ability to read. What did he say back in John chapter 10? He calls his sheep by name. And so he goes in before his father, bearing the names of his elect and interceding for us. I believe it was David Brainerd who said, you know, if I could hear Jesus in the next room praying for me, I would have, I'd fear nothing. I'd fear absolutely nothing. And then he says, but, but the thing is, he may not be in the next room, but he is praying for me on the authority of this verse. And what does he pray? What does he plead? He pleads his merits. He pleads his sacrifice. All he need do is, is just gesture to the marks received from being crucified for the sins of his people and point to his work and plead his merits and plead his work and plead his blood for us. He intercedes for us and that's why we'll be saved all the way, those who draw near to God through him. So he's keeping by power, he's keeping by intercession and he's keeping by advocacy. That's the hardest word you have to write today so 
I think so. Uh, A-D-V-O-C-A-C-Y. A-D-V-O-C-A-C-Y by advocacy. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. If you're in Hebrews, you're right close to it. So turn to 1 John chapter 2. And we'll read verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Well, every time I read this, I think of the way Exodus is, is laid out. The book of Exodus, uh, starting with chapters 19 and 20, where there, Israel is said to be the people of God, and they're told to keep the commandments of God. And chapter 20 gives the commandments of God. And then what's the, you know, they're told, keep these commandments. And then what's the immediate next thing he talks about? The priesthood and, and the tabernacle where sacrifices are made for their sins when they don't keep the commandments of God. In other words, keep the commandments of God, and when you don't, here is where we look to, God's way of salvation. Well, John says similarly, I'm writing these to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, because he knows sadly they will, because all our life we have a constant and endless war with the remaining corruptions of our flesh. So he says, if anyone sins, and as Spurgeon delightfully points out, you might think he would say, we lose our advocate by our sin. But he doesn't, does he? He says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. And that word advocate is the word parakletos. It may sound familiar to you. You've heard it said that that's what the Holy Spirit is called in John 14 through 16, and that's true. Here Jesus is called a parakletos, an advocate. And maybe you've heard people say, well, that's our defense attorney. No, that's not quite right. Uh, courtrooms in that day didn't work quite like our courtrooms. So this, no, this was not a professional lawyer or attorney. That was not the parakletos. The parakletos was someone who would stand up and speak in your defense, a character witness, some kind of witness who, who'd put in good words for you before the judge. Uh, the judge basically did everything, so this was not an attorney, but this would be somebody who would advocate for you. And that's the picture of the Lord Jesus, that when we, when we sin, we have someone who will stand before the Father and speak for us. Oh, you say, I just got that picture back in Hebrews chapter 7. Yes, that's true. This expands on that. He's our advocate, making intercession before the Father. And what does he plead? Well, as again Spurgeon points out, it's all in his name. It's all in what he says. He's Jesus Christ the righteous. I mean, he's really our defense. Jesus meaning what? Savior. Christ meaning what? Messiah. And what offices did the Messiah fulfill? Prophet, priest, and king. So as priest, he offered what verse 2 says, the propitiation for us that absorbs the wrath of God due to us for our sins. He takes the wrath of God in his sacrifice on the cross, and he's the righteous. So if he's taken our case, then it's a righteous case. And it is a righteous case. Why? Well, God is not letting us off for our sins. He's not winking at our sins. He's not saying our sins are okay. No, no, no. Every one of our sins is punished with the wrath of God on the Lord Jesus Christ, our propitiation. 
And that's what he pleads for us before the Father. So we are kept because of the power of God. We're kept by the intercession of Christ. We're kept by the advocacy of Christ. Some people have the idea, yes, you're saved and all your past sins are wiped out, but you better better keep your record clean from then on because you're on your own. Well, then in that case, there will be nobody singing the praises of the Lamb in heaven. Amen? Nobody. Because all sin, sadly, even after conversion. But when Jesus makes atonement for his people's sins, he makes atonement for all their sins and applies it and pleads it and we're kept by it because of it. So just as a a word of reflection before we move on, why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Why are we still Christians? Why are we Christians at all? And why are we still Christians? And if our way of answering this starts out with the words, because I, we're already going off in the wrong direction. Now, it's interesting. Maybe you've seen an absolutely wonderful bit from a a sermon by Alistair Begg where he talks about this. Absolutely golden. But I wrote this sermon long before, the the first version of this I wrote uh, long before seeing that, years, a decade before seeing that. And I (laughs) I wrote the same thing that he would later read. I suppose every gospel preacher thinks it. If you answer that question, because I, then you're headed in the wrong direction. Because you're resting your salvation and your assurance on you. Something about me. And I'll tell you what, I have long since come to the conclusion that if any part of it rests on me, I'm doomed. Anybody here feel the same? Well, I'll tell you, it is the same for every last one of us. If our salvation rests on anything about us, we're doomed. Our salvation didn't rest on it. Our continued salvation doesn't. Our ultimate salvation doesn't. It's all the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He will save his people from their sins. He came into the world to save sinners. He is our salvation. And and, and that's from the start to the end. So that if anyone boasts, what does Paul say? Let him boast in the Lord and in the Lord alone. So why am I a Christian and why do I remain a Christian? Because he died to save me. That's why. Not just to give me a, a brief reprieve and a second chance. No, to save me. Because he prays for me and he advocates for me day and night before the Father, even as the the devil accuses me day and night before the Father. He advocates for me and intercedes for me day and night, and he's always, he's always heard by the Father. Because he's given me eternal life, and he will see to it that I never perish. Because he holds me in the hand that formed the universe, and he will never let me go, and none has the power to snatch me or any one of you who trusts him out of his hand. So this is why. This is our Savior whom we adore. And this is why we adore him. Unlike Jesus, I mean, pardon me, unlike others, Jesus' commitment to us is no conditional, fleeting, tentative, maybe, maybe not thing. Unlike others, Jesus' commitment to us is forever. It's, it's for the duration. It's absolutely committed no matter what. This is the commitment of Jesus Christ to each and every one of his elect. What a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So these are six aspects of his present work. Now let's speak, and I'll speak brief, well, I'll speak 
pretty briefly, about his future work, because there's going to be another sermon, Lord willing, on prophecy. But let's talk about his future work, uh, Roman numeral. It's Roman numeral two. You may wonder what happened to two. Uh, three is just one of the mysteries of Microsoft Word. But the, you're, they're not missing, you're not missing Roman numeral two. Three is actually two, so you can just cross it out. Christ's work in the future. Well, coming to rapture first, R-A-P-T-U-R-E. And if you wonder what that word means, you're about to find out. His coming to rapture is hinted in John 14, 2 and 3. I'll read that to you because it's probably pretty familiar to you, most of you. It's hinted in John 14, 2 and 3, where in verse 1 he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So these are words of comfort. And in verses 2 and 3, he says, now listen, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now he's speaking exclusively to believers here, who will be the leaders of his church when he starts it on Pentecost. And he presents his future plans in two movements. He's going to, to go away to the Father, and he's going to come back and take them to where he is. So we will understand this more by looking more closely at each of those movements. When he says he's going away, is he talking about going away to Jerusalem or the Mount of Olives? No, he's talking about going away to the Father's house. And, and where's that? Heaven. That's in heaven. So he's going away to heaven. How is he going away to heaven? In spirit, in his mind, or bodily? Well, eventually he's, he's, he's going to bodily ascend, be at the right hand of the Father. That's, that's where he's bodily going. Okay, so when he says he's coming back to receive them to himself, does he mean he's coming back bodily at the death of every Christian to take him home to heaven? No, we'll see that's not possible if we even wondered if it was so. It's not possible that he's going to do that. So he's not talking about coming for us at our death. He's not talking about that at all. And he's not talking about his second coming either. Now, how do I know that? Well, because he says, in my father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to take you to be with me. Where's he going to be? He's going to be in heaven. So where's he going to come and take believers to be? In, to Jerusalem? Well, that's where the kingdom's going to be. Or to the Mount of Olives? That's where his feet are going to touch down at the second coming. But this is not the second coming. This is something else. He's coming to take them to be with him in heaven at some point in the future. So what he says, and, and, and then he, he doesn't give any signs, unlike Matthew 25. He doesn't talk about things, or 20, 24, pardon me. He doesn't talk about the things that will happen before this happens, or that will let you know that I'm about to come and can catch you away to be with myself in heaven. So this is, this is a, a hint, uh, it's a very strong hint, of the rapture hinted by Jesus but more clearly stated by Paul, number two, stated in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. And there you will see some of the same elements as in what Jesus just said. Second, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the trumpet of God. So Jesus doesn't mention a shout or a trumpet, but he's coming from heaven because that's where he's going. So as Jesus says, I'll come from my Father's house, heaven, Paul says he will descend from heaven. 
And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's almost like John 14 in reverse. Jesus speaks these things to comfort them. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he says he's going to come from heaven and take them and bring them back to be with him in heaven in his father's house. And Paul says that exact same thing just more fully and in a setting where he's talking about prophecy. Now, I promised you you'd see where the word rapture comes from. It is a biblical word, but it's a biblical word by way of the Latin translation of the Bible called, called the Vulgate. It's in verse 17 where he says, we will be caught up together. Well, the Latin word, if I'm saying it right, is rapiemur, which comes from a verb rapio, which means to seize and carry off. It's from that rapio that the word rapture comes. It means the catching away. And that is what this Greek word means that Paul uses, a catching away. The rapture is just the catching away of believers to be with Christ. And this is before the tribulation, before the wrath of God. How do I know? Well, because he'd promised that in chapter 1, verse 10, that we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So that's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. He rescues us from the wrath. If I'm in the wrath, I'm not rescued from it. And the whole tribulation is the wrath of God. Chapter 6 of Revelation says this is the day of the wrath of the Lamb. The whole period is the period of God's wrath. So if I'm rescued from the wrath of God, I'm rescued before the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, which Paul talks about in the next chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So at the end of chapter 4, he talks about the catching away of saints, as Jesus had. And then in chapter 5, he talks about the coming of God's wrath on the world. And in that, he talks about them. Here he talks about you and us. We're caught away, we Christians. But then when he talks about the wrath of God, it's them because it's the world. It's not the church who God visits with wrath. So uh, like what Jesus said, there's no warning signs. It's the next thing that Jesus is going to do. He's going to come and catch his church away. And then he's going to come, well, letter B, coming to revenge. He's coming to rapture his church away. He's coming to revenge. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, speaks of the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, executing vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our witness to you was believed. So unbelievers today, they're playing out the clock of God's grace and long-suffering, playing out the clock, playing out the clock, and then one day that buzzer is going to go off and the wrath of God is going to fall. And when Jesus comes back, it's not to fulfill everybody's dreams. When he comes back, it's to fulfill many people's nightmares. And all this game of the kingdom of man, all this, we do not want this one to rule over us, all of this, you shall be as God, is going to come to a crashing, roaring end under the wrath and the judgment of the King Messiah, of God the Son, who Psalm 2 says will uh, strike the nations with a rod of iron and 
break them like pottery, and he will rule from Jerusalem. Not cuddly, dear little Jesus, but the, the king of kings. So it is, he's coming to revenge, and see, finally, he's coming to reign, R-E-I-G-N, coming to reign. And again, just quickly, that's prophesied in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, which we've read many times. It's after this vision of the kingdoms of man coming like horrible monsters up out of the, the sea. Then he has a vision, Daniel does, of the Son of Man coming down from heaven in the clouds. And he's given dominion and a rule over all nations and tongues and tribes. And he's given a kingdom that will have no end. So this is not the kingdom of man. This is the kingdom of God, crushing and dominating all the kingdoms of man. Daniel prophesies that. Jesus prophesies that in Matthew, uh, Mark 14, 61 and 62. Again, where the high priest asks him who he is. Is he the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We quoted this earlier. That Jesus himself says that's him. He's coming. He's that Son of Man. And he will, uh, he will come, as Daniel says, to set up his kingdom, to reign over all the earth. It's prophesied. How is it merited? How does he deserve it? So many ways. <laughs> the passage I give you is uh, Philippians 2. And we won't read that together because we've read it many times also. But remember, Philippians 2 is where Paul says that though he existed in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. In fact, he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And then Paul says in verse 9, therefore, because of this self-humbling and this death, this is part of the the plan of the Trinity and the things accomplished on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee would, do, would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it is merited by his death on the cross. And Revelation says the same thing. It's the lamb who was slain. He's the one who's able to overcome take the seal out of the hand of the Father and start the tribulation rolling and bring in his kingdom. And we'll end with it portrayed. And let's turn here. This is our last scripture. But here is a picture of what's going to happen. Revelation 19 is where we're going. So here's a prophetic portrayal of the return of Christ to reign. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. The prophet says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And you say, What is that name? And I say, No one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God, just like in John 1, Ho Logos to Theu. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on, a, on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may, Psalm 2, strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty, 
And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the future work of Jesus Christ. Now he sits at the right hand of God the Father, saving, baptizing, keeping his people. One day he will come to rapture his people. He will come for wrath and revenge, and he will come to reign over the planet. This is the real Jesus, fully God and fully man. There's no better or safer place to be than to be in him, than to be in a relationship, to be joined with him, to believe in him. If he saves you, you're saved. If he judges you, you're judged. There is no losing his salvation. There is no escaping his judgment. There is no good reason to turn away from him. There is every good reason to turn to him while there is time. And God, in his mercy, some of you don't know him, God, in his mercy, has given you yet one more opportunity to hear the call, to humble yourself, to turn to him in repentant faith, and to know what it is to hear the shepherd's voice, and to be one of his sheep, and to be given eternal life, and kept and prayed for, sanctified, saved, satisfied, as only Jesus can do. As the world gets darker and darker and more dangerous and more deluded, there just is no other place to be. Friend, there is no other place to be, and there's no better place to be than to be in Jesus Christ. And there is no worse place to be than to be apart from Jesus Christ. Hear my plea. Hear my plea. If you don't know him, come to you. If you love him, we need to love him more. Pray for God to give us more fire and love in our hearts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, for its vivid truthfulness. Thank you for the Savior it presents. Ah, what a wonder the Lord Jesus is. I pray the Holy Spirit will glorify him to every heart. And again, as I prayed at the start, I pray at the end, let none of us leave unstirred, unmoved, unhumbled, unfilled with love and adoration for that Lord Jesus Christ. Any who doesn't know him, Lord, Father, draw that person to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.